Welcome to Inside Yorkshire with Susan, bringing you intriguing details about the lives of people here in Yorkshire. So, come on in and join us. Good morning, this is Susan here from Inside Yorkshire. I'm sitting with Andy Clues. Good morning. Good morning, Andy. Andy is a former journalist, timetease presenter and documentary maker, and now more recently an historical novelist. Thank you very much for agreeing to talk to me today, Andy. Always a pleasure. (laughs) I understand that you weren't born in Yorkshire, but that you moved here from elsewhere. Could you tell us where you moved from and why you, you picked upon Yorkshire? There's one word to say, grandfather. My grandfather was around about 1910 apprenticed to the legal office for the Diocese of Durham. And when it came for me, the time came for me to choose a college to go to, because I was going to be a teacher, he recommended that I come north. He said, do go north, don't go anywhere else, go north. And I did. And it's the the only time in my life I've ever fallen in love instantly. I walked out of the York Station to this, into the wonderful city of York and fell in love with it straight away. So my grandfather was responsible. He was instrumental. And where did he live and why did he recommend moving north then? He lived in Peterborough, which is where I was born. I think he, he, he had a sneaking love of the north all his life, even though, even though he didn't live here in, in Yorkshire. He, he had a, a love of it. There are family connections as well with parts of Yorkshire, but he was very strongly in favour of me heading north. <laughs> okay. Any regrets since then? No, none whatsoever. It is God's own country and I wouldn't live anywhere else. (laughs) My thoughts entirely, my thoughts entirely. So you were at college in York then. What did you study when you were there? I was studying to be a teacher. My subjects were geography and art, but I threw myself out after the second year. (laughs) I knew it was never going to work for me to be a teacher, even though mother and grandmother were teachers. And... It just didn't gel. I was I was unhappy. I was unsettled. I, I wanted to, to, to write. I knew I was going to write for a living. I'd known that since I was four. And when your back's against the wall as it was with me, I had to resort to desperate measures. So I, got, I, I finished college with nothing to go to. I wrote to 40 or 50 editors throughout the north of England. And then only one replied to say, no job for you, but why? And that was Don Evans at the Northern Echo in Darlington. He said, if you're ever passing Darlington, come in and see me. So I rang him and I said, I'm passing this afternoon. <laughs> and one of those things in life when doors open, an hour before I saw him, the cub reporter in the York office of the Northern Echo resigned. So Don and I talked about football, which I'm not a big fan of for about 20 minutes. And then he said, the job's yours. When can you start? So I said, tomorrow. And I did. So one of those occasions when being in the right place at the right time worked for you. Absolutely, yes. Right, so that's good. So you were working as a journalist then? As a journalist for the Northern Echo from about 68, 69 through to 76 when uh, by that time I'd met Liz, who is now my lovely wife, and we decided to have a a time out. She'd have got a job as a nanny in in Italy, and I resigned my job as a reporter for the Echo and and hitchhiked through across Europe just to see her. Um, Don, bless his heart, Don Evans, the editor, gave me a column every Saturday to to write, Europe from the ground floor, from the ground level. So I was pausing every week or so to write a column for him, send it back, and I'd he would send the payment for that onto the next place I was scheduled to go to. 
and that's how I financed the trip. Right, so you were a roving uh, reporter then. A roving reporter, came back in 76, settled down with Liz. Got, Don heard I was, I was back, gave me a job as a sub-editor with the Echo, which lasted until 77. And then I felt the call of broadcasting. So I got a job on local radio in Ipswich, Radio Orwell, and I stuck that for seven years. I was head of news for, for the last few years of that. Felt the call of Yorkshire so strongly all those seven years. I had, we had to come back. So Liz and I decided to relocate in 77, so in 84, beg your pardon, 84. So we relocated back to Yorkshire, and I got a job at Radio Tees as the, as the morning editor. And that lasted until 1990. Then one of the, another wonderful opening door happened. I was sitting on the news desk one Tuesday morning, and the phone rang, and I picked it up. And the voice said, this is Tiny Tees Television. We're advertising a job tomorrow. Will you please apply? And I never looked back since. So you were headhunted? Headhunted. And the sort of work that you did then, you were meeting a lot of interesting people, and I understand also working on documentaries, not just the news reporting. The documentaries came a little bit later, uh, after two or three years of gaining experience of television. I was a reporter to start with, and then was required to present. So we, I used to read the bulletins, which we pre-recorded in the in the basement of the studios in Middlesbrough. The trouble is there was a nightclub next door, or a day club that had loud music. Every time we had to record a bulletin, we had to ring them and say, can you turn your music off? <laughs> it was a bit, a bit Heath Robinson. <laughs> but it was, the documentaries came later. Any favourites? We did a, about six different series of a programme called The Way We Were, which was based on old archive film. That was great fun, but my biggest pleasure documentary-wise, was The Railway Story, which was the, the tale of the railways told from a northeast perspective. And I, that was absolutely... We, we travelled the country recording strange and wonderful things. More recently, there have been quite a bit of um, input locally with the, um, the Wensleydale Railway. Yes, I haven't had much to do with that. It's such a pleasure to see these old railways revived. When we were making the documentary, that we, we did cover the the future of railways, tried to as, as much as we could. But a revival of rural branch lines was was part of the remit of the programme. And we filmed up in Annick. OK, so there was a, a plan certainly to expand some of the the old railways, putting them back into areas that had been become unused, I guess. Yes, it's part of the fallout from beaching, the beaching years, the early 60s. Beaching is called... The Axe Man. In fact, it wasn't his fault. He was given a brief by Ernest Marples, who was the Tory government's transport minister. Funny thing, that. He was a road builder. <laughs> so he briefed Beeching on closing all the railways down. And the rest is history, so they say. Well, I think the, the roads are going to have to come back. There's mm. no question of it. We shan't see it, but another 50, 60 years, the railways have to be rebuilt in some form or another. Well, let's hope so. Absolutely, yeah. Now then, when I first met you... You, this is going back quite a long time, you were actually living in a building that you had converted from <laughs> yeah. a barn. You had actually completed the conversion when I met you, yeah. but I understand that there's quite an interesting tale behind all of that. Well, there is. Um, it was just outside Richmond. And as an army, Liz told me one day that there was a barn for sale in this particular plot of land. We went to have a look at it. It had been ruined for probably 50 years. It was full of dead sheep and barbed wire. But 
something clicked in my, my mind about this. And it turned out that when I was 14 as an army cadet, we had a uh, summer field camp at Cashrick and we drove, I can remember driving in the back of a lorry along the bottom of Dales Road and seeing this wonderful hillside, absolutely spectacular place. And thinking when I was 14, that would be a lovely place to live. And all, the, all those years later, when we actually lived in Yorkshire, we, we had the chance to buy it. And it was planets lining up. It's quite extraordinary, really. So we bought it and spent a year living in a caravan when we converted it. We had a solid fuel Rayburn, which powered the water and the central heating, had to be lit. But there was no kitchen to light it in. So we put it on the outside of the house. And I cooked Christmas dinner that day, that year, in a Mac with an umbrella with a Rayburn burning outside. <laughs> Not everyone would actually um, feel, well, I don't imagine it was particularly comfortable, but able to actually uh, go with that. Well, I think we'd actually bitten off more than we could chew because we didn't realise how much we'd bitten off until it was too late. We'd gone past the point of no return. You had two children then, didn't you? You we had both had, of the boys. What we, ages were they? They were five and three, I think, or five and two, and, and with another one on the way, which proved to be Rosie, my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Which probably pushed the um, the drive to actually get in there. Um, I would imagine it, uh, it it helped get you going. Well, we we moved in into the house when it was semi derelict. It was done up all around us. I mean, I remember one night at about eleven o'clock, several thousand feet of floorboards arrived, and the lorry dumped them on the road outside the house, and there we were in the darkness, having to move floorboards into the house. Liz too. Yeah. Oh, every all hands to the pumps. All it really hands was. On yeah. Deck. yeah. <laughs> You lived there for how long then, Andy? 21 years. 21 years. So it yeah. must have been quite a wrench for you moving down from there because you're now in Richmond, aren't you? Yes, we are. It was a wrench and it wasn't. It was a wrench because it was a lovely place to live in the summer, but it was a bad place to live in the winter because the road down to it, a mile-long road down to it, was one in four in parts. And one year we had snowdrift 17 feet deep on that road. So the winters were a bit touch and go. And it was haunted. It was haunted. Oh, it was haunted, yes. Several sightings of a figure we got to call Black Man, somebody dressed in a dark suit running down the western side of the house in the garden. And the kids all saw him separately. Uh, and Liz saw him in the garden and I saw him in the house. I've got goosebumps now. <laughs> it was quite friendly. A friendly ghost. Yes, a friendly ghost, yes. Right. No idea who he was? No idea whatsoever. The only possibility is that the builder found behind a beam in the old barn roof a half bottle of whiskey, empty of course, with the label of which we had dated to 1877, I think it was. So whether he was a, a, one of these... A vagrant, do you think? Well, yes, a, a whiskey drinking teetotaler... <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. Because he didn't drink the whiskey. No. It had whiskey in it still. It, it didn't have whiskey in it, no. Oh, no, it no. was empty. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right, so then you, you moved then down into Richmond, yes. where you currently live, and I can remember from when you first moved down here that that wasn't smooth running initially. You had quite a lot of work to do. We, we had to take the roof off. We created a suite of rooms in what was what had been the attic, but we lived in the house while the work was going on, so it was like living in a plastic bag all the time. But we got there, and it's, it's possibly one of the oldest houses in Richmond. Because I think, looking at the position of it and the thickness of the walls, that it, there is a strong possibility uh, it has a core, maybe 13th, 14th century. Wow. 
that then leads me on to your more recent enterprise, enterprise, whatever you want to effort. call it. Yeah. Well, not just an effort; it's published now, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, you're a, a novelist, and you have written a book entitled "Fire of God." Fire of God. Could yeah. you tell me? what the inspiration was behind that? Well, the, the house has partly inspired that, but the inspiration, I love alternative histories. I, I love alternative explanations of history. And we all know the victors get to write histories. And the thought had been in the back of my mind for a long time, that what if Harold II, King Harold, had survived the Battle of Hastings? There is some evidence from Henry I, who was William's grandson, I think, or son, to say that he met a man in Chester in the late 11th century who convinced him he was Harold. Now, I, I, I seized upon that and thought, well, what would happen if, if Harold had survived? He'd badly injured from the Battle of Hastings, but had survived. And hence the book Fire of God, which involves Alan the Red, who built the castle in Richmond, who's, who's a real character, and the heroine, Alice who's not a real character, she's fictional, she lived in our house. Ah, hence that's where it comes from. Indeed, then. yes. Yes. And Fire of God, what was the um, the meaning behind the title? Well, it's it's a, like a lot of titles, it's double meaning. Fire of God actually refers to the sword Alan is gifted by William before the Battle of Hastings. And it's a pattern-welded sword. It's a technique of pattern-welding iron, soft iron in patterns and putting a steel edge on the sword so it was both sharp but flexible it wouldn't break if in battle and alan's gifted the sword but the fire of god also refers to william's campaign to take this country over the conquest he was absolutely firmly convinced that god was on his side okay well if you would like to give a, a plug for your book please. oh surely not <laughs> Yes, it's available from Amazon, either as a, as a, as a paperback copy or as an e-book for your Kindle e edition. It's a good read. It is a good read. Uh, I can testify to that. Uh, it's a bit of fun. It's no, 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 no great literary work, but it's just a, a romp through Anglo-Saxon England. And you're planning another, I understand. Yes, that's underway. It's called That one's called Silence of Heaven, the new one. It takes place 150 years later and involves, in, to some extent, Alice, the her heroine from the first book, but she appears as a ghost. Ah, okay. And this is the story of Benedict, who is the son of a, a, a tanner from the Green in Richmond, who goes to work at Easby Abbey and then becomes a coal miner and eventually gets involved with King Harold's, King John's loss of treasure in the wash. Oh. Which I think, and again, an alternative history, I think that there's a strong possibility that John hocked the crown jewels to make up for the loss of territories in France. So, so, the, so the loss of the treasure in the wash could be a myth invented but, by John's publicists. Well, who knows? Who knows? We'll all look forward to that one. And perhaps uh, you'll actually talk to me again when that one's launched. Of course, naturally. How, how long does it take you to, to write? How long did it take you with the first one? Well, Fire of God, on and off, took about eight years because the, the research was quite detailed, as you can imagine. The world was a very different place in 1066. I suppose, yes, eight years on and off. And I've been on with the, this new one for probably about three years now. Right, so we can uh, expect in another five years, can we? Or? Well, I, I'm hoping to get it finished <laughs> this year. Oh, but whether I do or not, I don't know. OK. Now, just before we finish here, just wanted to ask you, I know that your eldest son, Ed, mm -hmm. 
is becoming quite well known as um, an artist. Yes, he is, bless him. We recently uh, we did some land art for the Tour de Yorkshire which, in the grounds of Richmond Castle. Which was a, a, a mounted knight, complete with hauberk and sword and helmet, from the biotapestry, inspired by the biotapestry, yeah. He does fabrics, he's done fabrics, he's illustrated lots of books. He's had a, a, a big exhibition solo show at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park. And he's doing rather well. And the other son, middle son, is also at art. Is also at art school, arty. So we're, we're hoping great things from for them. Right. Okay. Well, I'm hopefully going to uh, manage to book an interview with um, with Ed too. But in the meantime, thank you very much, Andy. That was really good and informative. A pleasure, sir, as always. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode, then please sign in to follow us on the rest of the Inside Yorkshire podcasts. This is Susan signing off from Inside Yorkshire.